This morning, our word comes from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but at the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear your children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistle for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you are taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. May grace and peace be multiplied to each of you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here at Mission Church. I'm in I'm excited and I'm humbled to be with you this morning, especially in this context, as we move into a new season, the season of Advent, and as we launch a new series over the next few weeks entitled The Coming of the King. So here's the plan. I'm just going to let you know, so there's no guessing. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some familiar as well as unfamiliar passages of Scripture that reveal to us our need for the birth of Jesus, as well as the anticipation that we as followers of Jesus have as we anticipate and look forward to Jesus' return. Because ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is going to return. But before we dive in, what is the deal with Advent anyways? What does this even mean? When I was a kid, it was simply a calendar and you open up a little door and you get a chocolate and that was Advent, right? Anybody else have that? Yes, I, I miss those. Well, what is Advent anyways? Well, Advent is a Latin word for coming or arrival. And since the 4th century, the church 
has used these weeks leading up to Christmas as a time to observe and to focus our attention on the once anticipated birth of Christ as well as His promised return. Advent is a time for you and I to lean into. We're invited to join in to the groanings of creation, to lean into the desire for justice that's hardwired into every human heart, the desire we have for all things to be made right in this already, not yet reality that we live in. And as we focus our hearts on this first coming of Jesus and anticipate the second coming of Jesus, Advent is an opportunity for us to face up to the darkness so that we can appreciate the light. Now, if you haven't already, please open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. You might be thinking, John, our text this morning is not very Christmassy. Where are the shepherds? Where are the three kings? Where's the baby Jesus? And you're right regarding that this is not necessarily a traditional Christmas Advent text, but I promise you, it really is. It really is. In fact, many scholars, they call Genesis 3 the first gospel message. And by necessity, this morning's message is going to be selective, not exhaustive, for we could spend an entire four weeks in this chapter alone. And there's too much to be possibly covered in our short time together. So this morning, my goal is to help make sense of this text, both practically and relationally, especially regarding the context and the consequence of sin, and ultimately why it is that we need not just a king, but the king. Need for the king. Would you join me in prayer, and then we'll dive into our text. God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the gift of the church that you've given to us as believers, that you've adopted us as sons and daughters and reconciled us as brothers and sisters. And we ask, Lord, as we sit under the preaching of your word, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would soften our hearts to a greater understanding of the gospel, that you would stir our affections away from the things of this world into Jesus. Lord, we love you and we give you all the glory. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be beautiful and pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and you are our redeemer. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love going to the movie theater. Anybody else? A couple of you. But I love the experience. I love the smell of popcorn. I love the giant soda. I love the candy that I definitely don't sneak in. Um, but I love it. I love the giant screen, the massive sound system. And now that they have recliners, this is my idea of a good time, right? It's awesome. Now, there's only a few things worse than showing up late for a movie. Roller coasters is one of them. We talked about that last week. <laughs> but from stumbling through the dark, looking for your seat, spilling your popcorn as you trip over people's feet, to the feeling that everyone's staring at you when you walk in late and you're looking for a seat. Not to mention that you have no idea who the characters are. You've missed crucial plot points, crucial dialogue, character development, you might as well wait until the movie's on Netflix and stream it because it's going to end up there anyways. In the same way, if we begin our Advent series, if we begin this week with the baby in Bethlehem, we miss the whole first half of the story. And there's so much at stake, so much more than spilling your popcorn or having to sit in the front row seat of the theater. There's so much more at stake because if we start at the middle of the story, it's going to be impossible for us to fully understand the gospel and comprehend the brokenness that exists in this world that we live in. Consider this morning the reality that the story of that baby in a manger is actually rooted in a curse and in a promise. 
And if we don't understand that curse, and if we don't understand the promise, then we won't understand the glory of the story of that baby in a manger. Now, let's consider the context of this historical events within the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was time, before there was anything at all, there was God, right? And God made the world so that he might manifest his own glory in order that we might know him and love him and trust him. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, which says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You see, God was He is. He always will be. And God created everything out of nothing. He filled the darkness with light. He filled the emptiness with stuff. (laughs) He filled it up. And then He made Adam and Eve. But not in the same way that He created everything else. You see, the way in which He fashioned man was different from the rest of creation as He took the dust of the earth and formed Adam And he formed Eve using one of Adam's ribs. You can say that out of all creation, man was God's special addition. Adam and Eve were created by God. They communed with God and they were perfect for one another. Absolutely perfect. Relational bliss. And God gave them everything to enjoy. And they lived in paradise. They lived in perfection. For everything that God had created in this world was perfect up to that point. In fact, the very name of the garden, Eden, is meant to invoke pleasure, meant to invoke delight. Eden was fertile. It was rich in minerals and materials. Eden was a place where God himself dwelled and walked with man. One word that would perfectly describe the Garden of Eden is shalom or peace. There was a rich, integrated, relational wholeness. The life of Adam and Eve was full of peace. They walked with God. They had each other. They had everything that the garden provided for them. There was no storm cloud in the sky. What could possibly go wrong? No hint of trouble at all. But chapter 3 changes everything. Things take a turn as everything goes from bad then worse than you could possibly imagine. And as all human beings who have ever and ever will walk the earth, we have all been affected by what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. You see, what we find in this text is the very explanation to why the world is the way it is. Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much wickedness? Why is there so much sin and corruption? Why is there disease and pain and death? Why is there conflict and hatred and war? You see, everything broken, everything bad finds its beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson describes the events that take place in Genesis 3 like this. He says, A catastrophe has occurred. We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated from it by disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. Could anybody relate to that? We are in the middle of a mess. So let's take a look at this mess. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, the question is begging to be asked. Who in the world is this serpent? And we find the answer to that question in the back of the book. Anybody else take classes that had the, the answers to the problems in the back of the book? That was my favorite class. 
right? And I think that's how most of us passed geometry. At least that's true for me, right? That's how I got through geometry. In the same way, we find the answer to this question, who is the serpent in the back of the book? In the last book of the Bible, we meet this same character again. Instead of a serpent, he's a dragon. In Revelations 12.9, which tells us the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. If there's any uncertainty about the identification of who the serpent is, if there's any question about whether the serpent and Satan were the same character in the narrative of Scripture, the author of Revelations removes all doubt as he tells us what Satan does. He says he's the deceiver of the whole world, which speaks to the truth that Satan does not have any legitimate claims. He's a liar. The paths that he offers do not lead to genuine hope and happiness. He's a deceiver. And that's exactly what we see him doing in Genesis chapter 3, deceiving. In verse 1 again, he says to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, This was a complete distortion of what God actually said. This was a distortion of God's word completely, twisting God's word. God's generosity was being perverted by Satan's question to suggest that God was being a giant Scrooge. There there was divine stinginess. And Satan was so subtle that Eve did not even suspect that God's word was being twisted. You see, he didn't directly deny God's word, did he? But he introduced, now listen, he introduced the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. He introduced the false notion that you and I have been hired to be God's editors. That we have been given the job of translating God's word, his interpreters. And our job is to define for ourselves what God means when he says what he says. Such a thought had never been verbalized before and it was enticing. And a seed of doubt at that moment was planted into Eve's heart. Doubt about who God is, and a doubt about God's word, and a doubt about God's character. And this doubt would bear immediate fruit. Understand, in the midst of perfection, God gave Adam and Eve one simple instruction. One test. It was a test of their trust in Him. A test of their obedience in Him. And the question was essentially this. Would they obey His word? Would they believe His word? Would they trust His plan. See, God has given them an opportunity here to show him that they would obey him for one reason and one reason only. Not because it's a really good idea or because if they obeyed, they will get health and wealth, but rather that they would obey because he is God. And friends, this test given to Adam and Eve is the same. These questions concerning their trust and obedience to God have not changed. In other words, this is a foundational truth that confronts all of us. One commentator says this, Genesis 3 is a story that catches us up into itself as we also come face to face with these same crucial questions. Will I believe God's word? Am I prepared to trust God's plan? Or will I believe whatever I want to believe and do whatever I want to do? Let's take a look at how Eve responds to this invitation in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. Now, did God tell her that she can't touch the tree? (laughs) God didn't say that. 
God never said that they weren't allowed to touch the tree. Eve has taken some liberty here. This wasn't God's instruction. This wasn't his rule. He simply said, don't eat the fruit. But Eve here is magnifying God's strictness. Just touch the tree and zap, you're dead. Her comment suggests that God is so harsh that an inadvertent slip would bring death. I'm reminded of the other day, Stacy's in the, in the kitchen cooking dinner, and she tells Lincoln, get out of the kitchen. You're in my way. You're under my feet. And Lincoln comes to me crying, and I thought he was hurt the way he was crying. And so I say, Bud, what's wrong with you? Are you hurt? Did you fall? Is something wrong? And he says, Mommy told me that I'm never going to be able to eat ever, ever again. <laughs> A bit overdramatic, right? Buddy, she's just making dinner. She's actually making you food. She just needs you out from under her feet. Lincoln, like Eve in the garden, made the rules so much stricter. <laughs> now let's just pause here for a moment. What are we actually dealing with in this dialogue? What is the serpent seeking to do? This is a temptation to assert our autonomy. It's a temptation to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong rather than relying on God's word for direction. You see, this is a temptation to, to distrust God and say, well, God, I'm not sure if he really has my best interests in mind. God, I'm not really sure you know what you're doing in this situation. Now, encouraged by Eve's revision to what God actually said, Satan went after God himself, attacking his goodness, proclaiming God is actually depriving you of an awesome life. God is actually depriving you of what would make your life really good, helpful, awesome. He is holding out, and Satan does this by appealing to Eve's sight, her belly, and her intellect. Look at verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. In other words, her eyes, her stomach, and her desire were bigger than her ears. God had spoken. She heard God's word. But Satan made an appeal to her senses, an appeal to her emotions, an appeal to her intellect. He appealed to her design and desire for things to be the way she would like things to be. In other words, the lie of the serpent was far more appealing to her than God's word. And so she ate. And Adam, he ate too. Look at verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This whole time, Adam was standing right next to her. He was there. So she eats as a result of temptation, and Adam eats because he let his wife lead him. She was tempted to do it, and he just chose to disobey. Disobey God's clear command, and he was helped in doing so by this idea that there would be no consequences if he did. You see, the lie of the devil is always the same. I can make it possible for you to get what you want, to feel good, to push beyond the boundaries of God's beautiful plan, and I'll make sure that you're not going to have to pay any consequences. And so Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, and nobody listens to God. And sin enters the world, bringing with it the consequences of death, sin, 
brokenness, guilt, shame, sickness, everything evil and broken and bad. And in that moment, as the taste of the fruit touched Adam and Eve's lips, at the foot of that tree, both Adam and Eve, they died. Henry Blotcher is an is a old theologian from a long, long time ago, and he's helpful. He says this, In the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence, but nevertheless an existence. In other words, Adam and Eve's existence was now one of death. And not only that, sin immediately penetrated every sphere of their being like a drop of dye in a pail of water. They were at once utterly sinful. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This verse speaks to the reality that sin changes everything. And Adam and Eve are now exposed. This newfound awareness of their nakedness speaks to their predicament before God. They now had an awareness of their guilt, an awareness of their shame. They had sin. They rejected and disobeyed God's good rule and reign by doing what He told them explicitly not to do. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator. See, this is exactly what they did. This is exactly what they've done. God's truth exchanged for the lie of the devil. In other words, all of the beauty, all of the holiness, all of the loveliness that is represented in God's creative handiwork in the Garden of Eden and in their lives has now been tarnished, marred, and depleted. Brothers and sisters, if we choose to worship the creation, all that God created rather than Himself, beauty and intimacy will be replaced with brokenness and isolation. Friends, this is the explanation of why the world is the way it is. You see, it's because of what happened in the garden. And the result is that you and I, the moment we're born, we are dead spiritually and we're dying physically. The process has begun. What we have here is essentially the source of human depravity. This speaks to the condition of the human soul, which there is nothing good in and of ourselves. And this condition is true. Of all of us, every human being born into this world, paradise was not only lost for Adam and Eve, you see, but for all of us, people in the past, people in the present, people in the future and yet to come are all born in this condition because of what Adam did. We all have been impacted. We all have been infected by this disease called sin. But Adam and Eve are about to be kicked out of the garden. Right? There's consequences to your actions. That's what I tell my kids. <laughs> they're about to be kicked out, but before they do, before they're evicted, God comes to seek them out. And it's here that we begin to see some good news. Look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard God walking in the garden, this sound that once brought them so much joy. The sound that was once sacred was now filling them with fear. The sound that once filled them with so much joy, they now trembled. And so what did they do? Well, they do what all of us do. They ran. They hid. They do what every child does when they get in trouble. They ran and they hid. 
A few weeks ago, I found some leftover Halloween candy wrappers piled in a, in a pile in the corner under my desk. And I knew I didn't eat those. I knew I didn't throw the trash under my desk. And I knew Stacy didn't do that because that would have been weird. So I called out, who is sneaking candy and who is trying to hide the wrappers under my desk? And obviously no one confessed to this, but I went upstairs and found the culprit hiding in her closet. <laughs> and friends, we all do this. Maybe not with candy wrappers, but we all sin. And immediately there's this flood of guilt and shame and this overbearing thought, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Why do we think that we can hide from God? I'm reminded of Psalm 139, verse 7 through 8, that says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. We all know this, yet when we disobey, our natural inclination is to try and hide, to run. You see, sin and unbelief brings about the delusion in us that we can go somewhere that God is not. But can we truly hide from God? No, but we still try. And we hide in the trees of our own rebellion, trying to cover up our guilt, trying to cover up our shame with religion and good works and morals. Maybe if I could go there. Maybe if I could do this. Maybe if I, if I attempt all of this that is good, maybe then I could cover this all up. Maybe then I can fix this problem. But church, our self-focus and our self-help and our hiding from God is the foundation of our fallen condition. And the truth is, we may be able to run, but we can't hide. Look at verse 9. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, did God truly not know where they were? No. Verse 9 is an expression of God's love and his grace. Despite their disobedience, God still loved them. And this is good news, ladies and gentlemen. Understand that if God does not love the rebel, if God does not call out to us, there would be no hope. But He does. And He calls out to Adam. And it's out of an expression of His love. Out of an expression of His mercy and His grace. And this is how God works. And God calls out to you. He knows every one of your names. God knows every one of us. And even though by nature we are rebels, even though by nature we are sinners and broken and we're enemies, even though all of this is true, He still calls out to us and He reaches out to us, the disobedient. And if this is not true, we have no hope. But it is. It is. Brothers and sisters, we can only begin to deal with fear and shame when God says to us, where are you? Perhaps this morning God's calling out to you. Calling you out of your hiding place. Calling you out of your self-condemnation. Calling you out of your secrecy. Calling you out of your self-help and self-trust and self-torment. If this is you, listen, do not hide. Do not run. Answer His call. Trust Him. He is good. Now, let's continue to look at this consequence of sin in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. You with me? You guys doing okay? 
He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. There's a newfound pain. The consequence of sin is a newfound physical pain that is involved in childbirth. Amen? I don't know. But even more so, what I do know is I think this speaks to a little bit more. There's a greater pain in raising a child in a sinful world, not knowing where they will go or what they will do. And for some of us, this pain speaks to the pain and the sadness of losing a child, whether in the womb or later in life, in an accident or such. Not only this, but there is also an implication on marriage, where marriage becomes this newfound arena for self-centeredness. I'm part of both the husband and the wife. You see, the world that we know this morning is not the world that God made in His perfection, but the world that man has spoiled in his rebellion. The world we know this morning is not the world that God created in His perfection, but the world that man has spoiled in his rebellion. Look at verse 17. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust. In other words, I gave you a job to look after the garden, but now you're going to just become part of the garden. Ultimately, all of this is a result of sin. But friends, there is hope. There is hope. There is good news. For in this curse, there is a beautiful, hopeful promise of a Savior. Of the one who will break the curse by crushing the serpent. Go back to verse 14 and 15 and we'll end here. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. More than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. These two verses speak to the one who has come and will return. These verses speak about the second Adam, Jesus. You see, the first Adam, he flunked out of the garden. But the second Adam, he conquered in the garden. He was successful. He triumphed in a different garden the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, born a baby, fully man, fully God. He was tempted in every way that we are. He did not sin, but he lived his life in full obedience to God's good rule and reign. And he knows what it is to feel the pain and the sadness as he too lived in a broken and sinful world just like we do. Consider the text that we had meditated on earlier. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus is able to identify with us because of His human experience, His sufferings that He endured while being tempted. And the good news is that Jesus, being tempted in every respect that, that is in every area of personal life, and unlike us, He was perfectly obedient. He remained sinless. And despite his innocence, Jesus went to the cross in order to pay for our rebellion, in order to pay the consequence of death that you and I deserve because of our sin. And in that triumph on the cross, he crushed the head of Satan. Understand this. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, 
we see that the garden is protected. And it's protected so Adam and Eve cannot go back into the garden. In fact, there's a flaming sword that's protecting the garden so they cannot enter. The tree of life is being guarded. The only way to get back in is, well, somebody's going to gonna have to deal with that flaming sword. And what does Zechariah tell us? Well, I'll let you know. He says this, God will strike the shepherd. And who does Jesus say is the shepherd? He says, I'm the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. And then Isaiah says, God was pleased to crush him. Surely he has borne our sickness. Surely he has carried our pains. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. And church, we have nothing whatsoever in and ourselves to fix this issue, to gain entry into the garden. But all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who surrender their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, all who choose to no longer live beyond the boundaries that God has put in place for us are given life. And we can rejoice in this truth that Satan is a defeated foe. There is a day yet to come. And we sit in this season of Advent in anticipation when Jesus will return, when He will gather His own and give to each of us the privilege of enjoying a world in which there is no sin, no sorrow, no brokenness, no pain, no relational strife, no bitterness, no death, just fantastic beauty and perfect communion with God and one another. And so when we sit in this season of Advent, we long for that day. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. And I wonder this morning, are you confident today that when God does return in power in the person of Jesus, that you will be included in that company? I plead with you this morning. Don't reject Jesus. Answer God's call. Come out of hiding. Stop running. Turn to Jesus. Accept His payment for your sin. And accept the hope that can only be found in the good news of the Gospel. The hope that is not found in our family of origin. The hope that is not found in our spouse. Students, the hope that's not found in your parents. The hope that's not found in the things that this world has to offer or in our own good works or in our own moral attempts. You see, the hope can only be found by coming out of the hiding coming out of the, the trees of our own rebellion and running to Jesus who has come to find us. Yes, naked and ashamed, but trust Him. He is good. Follow Him and allow Him to cover your shame and to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray for those who have been trying to figure this out on their own and those who have been running from You. Lord, that you would soften their hearts. That they may have heard the gospel and they would receive you as Lord and Savior today. I pray for those who have been following you culturally that they would see there's more to this. There's this invitation to surrender, not just as to you as Savior, but also as Lord. And I pray, Lord, that in this time we would find comfort that yes, we live in a broken world, but the battle is already won. And as we live in this in-between time, we rest in the hope that we find in the fact that Jesus, you lived, you died, you rose from the grave to give us life with you and each other. And we look forward to the day when you return. And during this time, we 
are thankful for the gift that you've given us in this, your spirit who lives in us that changes our desires to give us an, a, a desire to live for holiness. And you empower us to live on this mission that you've given us. And we thank you for that. Lord, we love you and we give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.